2: This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. One of the most horrific murders in Birmingham's history occurred two days before Christmas in 1959. During the seven weeks that followed... Hundreds of officers interviewed thousands of men in what was then the most extensive murder inquiry the city had ever seen. The investigators utilized a number of unprecedented techniques to try and track down the killer, but it seemed as though a routine house call was all that was needed to break the case. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 32 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 8, Episode 31 for Part 1 of this two-part case. On February 9th, 1960 a 27-year-old man named Patrick Joseph Byrne was brought to Warrington Police Station for routine questioning. Almost two months had passed since Stephanie Baird's decapitated body was found in her room at the YWCA Hostel in the Birmingham suburb of Edgbaston. After providing a fingerprint sample, Byrne suddenly exclaimed that he had something to do with the killing. Detective Sergeant George Wellborn found Byrne to be rational but upset at times during their conversation. Birmingham City Police were contacted, and at 11.25pm the Senior Investigating Officer, Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton, arrived at the station to bring Byrne back to Birmingham for further questioning. They travelled by car throughout the night, Arriving at the Speedwell Road police station in the early hours of the morning. At 10.45am on February 10th, Byrne was brought into an interview room to be interrogated by Detective Superintendent Bomber and Detective Chief Superintendent Horton. Byrne was told that he would be detained until the police could look into his movements at the time of the murder. He replied, I cannot get it out of my mind. I want to help you all I can. I can draw you the room and everything about it, even how I got into the cubicle. I suppose you found the note I left. The contents of the note found on Stephanie's dressing table had not been published, and Byrne willingly provided handwriting samples. He told the officers, I can't remember the exact words, but I will write what I thought I wrote. Byrne wrote variations of I thought this would have to happen, a phrase similar to the words that had been found on the note which read this was the thing I thought would never happen. Byrne then drew an accurate diagram of Stephanie Baird's room, outlining the position of the furniture and her body. He made a second sketch, a map of the Queen's Wing, and used dots to illustrate the route he took through the window of Room 6, down the corridor and into Room 4, where Stephanie was murdered. Byrne then began recounting his movements that day. He had gone to work as normal at a construction site on Hagley Road, until he took his lunch break at around 1pm. Byrne recalled, I went with Paddy Duffy and two Scottish chaps and another Irishman I didn't know to the Ivy Bush pub in Hagley Road. We had a drinking session there, leaving just before three o'clock and then we all went back to the site. All of us went to the hut and there was some card playing and a lot of shouting and bawling. Burns said that he had been dilly-dallying after finishing work that evening and remembered walking along Wheelie's Road just outside the hostel grounds. He stated, ''I know the hostel there because I don't live far away.'' I saw a girl turn into the gates, and I stopped at the front drive and looked up at the windows, some of which were alight. The girl had vanished inside the hostel. I walked up the drive and made my way through the side gate.'' I thought I would like to have a peep through a window. I have done this before a few times. Byrne revealed that he had previously been caught on the stairs inside the main building after sneaking in late at night a year prior. On another occasion, he had entered a female's room in a block of flats in the garden and switched on the lights. The young woman was in bed and when she saw him he quickly thought of a woman's name and claimed he was looking for someone he knew. Burn sat on the woman's bed and began speaking with her. She was nice and spoke friendly, and when she asked me to go, I went. She got out of bed in her pyjamas and let me out. I've never assaulted anybody there before. It just so happened this incident was reported to the police when they were inquiring about Peeping Tom's in the area. Patrick Byrne then began speaking in more detail about the night Stephanie Baird was murdered. His voice was firm, but his shaking hands betrayed his calm facade. The night I killed the girl in these cubicles, I went in through the front drive and into the grounds. There was only one light on in the block of cubicles. I looked through the curtains of the bedroom and saw a girl wearing a red pullover and underskirt. She was combing her hair. I only watched her for a couple of seconds. I thought somebody might see me, so I decided to have a better peep from the inside. I went round the back and found a little window open a bit. I pulled myself up onto the sill, opened the big window, and then stepped onto the bed. I then went into the corridor. Byrne explained that he pulled a chair over to the door of room four to look through a glass panel above the door. He told the officers that he became annoyed when Stephanie didn't remove any more of her clothes. He was about to leave when the door opened. She came face to face with me and she asked what I was doing. I told her I was looking for someone. She said, Let me get the warden. We were standing quite close together and I was just going to run. Byrne turned to leave, but his arm momentarily brushed Stephanie's breast and he became aroused. I got hold of her, then I said, Give me a kiss and before she said no, I kissed her. She tried to shove me away, but couldn't, and for a second I got her round the waist. She screamed, and then I put my hands round her neck. She went backwards inside the room with me, squeezing her throat, and then fell backwards. Her head bounced on the floor, and I was lying on top of her, kissing her, and squeezing her neck at the one time. I heard a couple of small noises in her throat but kept on kissing her. After a while I knelt up. I was fully sure she was dead then because I had the whole power of my back squeezing her throat. Bun described pulling off Stephanie's red jumper and bolting the door shut before assaulting her body. He spotted a table knife inside a cupboard beneath the dressing table and used it to mutilate her breast's abdomen and back. The knife handle broke off, but Byrne continued to use the blade to decapitate her. It surprised me how easily the head came off, he said. Afterwards, he picked up the stationery and envelope Stephanie used to send letters home to her mother and wrote a note. Byrne told detectives, I can't remember the words I used, but I wanted everybody to see my life in one little note. The other times I have been definitely satisfied with peeping, but this time it was different somehow. What I meant when I wrote this note was that I thought I might be had for rape, but not for murder. Once he had finished writing the note, Burn switched off the light in the room and got dressed. After climbing out of the window, he stood in the garden putting on his jacket when he saw an older woman in the kitchen. He said, I was afraid I should have to go for her if she saw me. Burn described himself as frantic and said as he walked around to the back of the grounds he saw another light coming from a room. According to Byrne, he wasn't attracted to the woman he saw but continued looking through the illuminated windows. I was very excited, breathing heavy, and thinking I ought to terrorise all the women. I wanted to get my own back on them for causing my nervous tension through sex. As he walked towards the main building, Byrne spotted Margaret Brown through the laundry room window. He told detectives, She attracted me and I felt I only wanted to kill beautiful women. I watched her for a while and stood close to the window. I only looked at her face, and the urge to kill her was tremendously strong. I thought I would take her quietly and quickly and picked up a big stone from the garden. I think I first got a brassiere from the clothesline and then wrapped it around the stone. Just as he was about to approach the door, an elderly woman came into the garden carrying a bucket, and Byrne watched her from the shadows, waiting for her to go back inside. The investigators knew from statements taken that night that the hostel cook Helen Evans had crossed the garden to empty the swill bucket shortly before Margaret Brown was attacked. Byrne made his way to the laundry room and pushed the door open to try and get Margaret's attention. When she closed it, he tried again, turning off the laundry room light and waiting beside the door leading to the ironing room. He said, I heard her call out something about, Who's there? The door opened and I struck her with the stone in my hand. The stone swung out of my hand and she screamed. I turned and ran through the grounds and leapt over at the gate. Byrne ran to his lodgings less than half a mile away on Islington Row. He quickly changed his clothes and wrote a letter to his landlady and the other young men staying there that read, Dear Mum and Boys, I am very sorry you'll have to receive this horrible letter. Like Jock had two personalities, I must be the same. One very bad, and the other the real me. No explanation was provided as to who Jock was. Byrne recalled hearing someone come up the stairs, so he put the letter into his pocket. He stared into the bathroom mirror and started talking to himself. He told detectives, I was searching my face for signs of a madman, but I could see none. I felt I ought to commit suicide quicker than Jock had done it, and then I thought of my mother and Christmas. I didn't want to upset nobody for Christmas, so I thought I could put it off until after Christmas. But I never gave his landlady the letter. I tore up that note the same night and scattered it in small pieces in the street. I slept with my cousin in his bed because I was afraid to sleep by myself in my own room. Byrne considered going to Wyland and travelling north, where armed police were stationed. He thought of ways to make them shoot him. Byrne left Birmingham the next morning and returned to his mother's home in Warrington. He had left the shoes and clothes he wore during the attacks in his room at the house in Islington Row, telling Detective Horton, You were right about the shoes in the papers. I bought them from a shop in Bromsgrove Street near the Black Swan pub. When Patrick Byrne was told he would be charged with murder, he replied, I must tell you everything and get it off my mind. I don't know why I did not confess before. This has been worrying me tremendously. Crowds of curious onlookers watched as Patrick Joseph Byrne was brought to Birmingham Magistrates Court on February 11th to be charged with Stephanie Baird's murder. Byrne was remanded into custody at Winson Green Prison as the investigators sought to corroborate his confession. They spoke with the owner of the lodging house at 97 Islington Row, Mrs. May Jeans, and some of the other residents, including her niece Doris Hutt. May recalled seeing Byrne enter through the back door at around 5.15pm on December 23rd. He did not want any dinner. She saw him again at 8pm when he was dressed in his best clothes and carrying a suitcase. Byrne told May he would be leaving. The pair spoke several hours later around 10.30pm and Byrne said he was going to wait until the morning because he had been drinking. He left before 8am the next day. The police interviewed Byrne's cousin Joseph Ryan who had a room in the same house. Byrne had come to Joseph's room at about 8pm that night wearing his work clothes and told him he wanted to have a drink together before he went to Warrington. The pair went to a pub called The Roebuck, and Byrne, who had changed into a suit, gave him the key to his room because he was leaving. They had stayed in the pub until closing time, and Joseph then walked a friend to the bus stop. When he returned, Byrne was asleep in his room. Before he left the next morning, Byrne told Joseph that his work clothes were in his old room if he wanted to have them. Michael John Keeley had been working with Byrne on December 23rd. He was staying at the lodging house in Islington Row and recalled Byrne wearing dark grey trousers, a short coat, and a pair of black shoes. On Christmas Day, Joseph Ryan gave Michael a key to Byrne's room. Michael recalled seeing some clothing and a pair of black shoes Byrne had left behind. Doris Hutt had cleared out Byrne's room on December 27th and left the clothes and shoes beside the dustbins. She remembered picking up a jacket, a shirt, a pair of socks and trousers. Sometime in January, the shoes and clothes had been picked up by a refuse collector, and when the police inquired at the depot on February 12th, they met with Francis Patrick Hawthorne. Francis had picked up the shoes from outside 97 Islington Row and kept them in the cab of his vehicle. He said the clothes had been soaked through so he left them with the rubbish. Francis gave the police the black shoes and they were taken to the forensic lab for analysis. While awaiting the results, detectives spoke to Patrick Byrne's foreman at the Osborne & Co. construction firm. Benjamin Hinton said that Byrne had been working with him at a site on Hagley Road for around five weeks but on December 23rd, Byrne returned from his lunch break drunk. He was in such a state that his foreman had to order him off the scaffolding at around 3.20pm for health and safety reasons. Byrne left the site soon after, and Benjamin Hinton didn't see him when the rest of the men came to collect their pay later that day. After Byrne was charged with murder, Arthur Osborne, the director of the construction firm, spoke with the press and described Byrne as a conscientious workman who was friendly and quiet. Everybody considered him a good lad. His cards indicated he had been in regular employment. His workmates and I couldn't believe it when we heard he had been arrested." After leaving Edgbaston, Byrne worked for a Warrington-based construction firm up until his arrest. His mother's neighbours in Warrington described Mrs Byrne as a quiet woman who kept to herself and told reporters that the house appeared deserted and had been left in darkness since Byrne was taken into custody. The family had moved from Ireland to North Wales for a short time, before Byrne's widowed mother and his three younger sisters, aged between 9 and 22, moved to the house in Warrington in August 1959. Byrne had only lived there for seven weeks, but neighbours said he caused no issues and always appeared immaculately dressed. The black shoes were examined by senior experimental officer John Merchant at the West Midlands Forensic Lab. Several areas on the right shoe tested positive for traces of human blood. The footwear was then given back to the Birmingham City Police to conduct their own experiments. On February 19th, P.C. Warner, Detective Chief Inspector Albert Ratcliffe and Detective Sergeant Davis took the shoes to the YWCA Hostel. D.S. Davis and Inspector Radcliffe used the shoes to make impressions in the sand. P.C. Warner then photographed these impressions. Davis had made the plaster casts of the three shoe prints found at the scene on December 23rd. One print was found by the laundry room window and the other two were made on the drive. One pointed towards the laundry room and the other pointed towards the double gate. All the shoe prints displayed a transverse linear pattern across the soles and heel. Davis put the left shoe on his foot and made a shoe print in the sand before taking an impression for comparison. He did the same thing again, but this time, he rolled a wheelbarrow over the sand first to replicate the elements in the impression taken several months earlier. The photographs and plaster casts were given to DCI Ratcliffe, who had been a member of the fingerprint department with Birmingham CID for over two decades. He concluded that the impressions matched and was confident the shoe prints made at the scene came from burned shoes. As Margaret Brown had guessed due to her attacker's silent footsteps, the soles were made from rubber. All the extra detectives who had joined the investigation returned to their regular duties after Patrick Byrne was charged. Byrne was brought for a two-day committal hearing at Birmingham Victoria Law Courts on March 1st. People had been queuing to get a seat in the public gallery from 7am that morning, almost three hours before the doors were due to open. Out of the 200 people in the queue, most of whom were homemakers. Only 30 managed to secure a seat by the time the prosecution presented their case. Mr Jardine, acting for the prosecution, outlined the evidence against Patrick Byrne and asked that the defendant be committed for trial. Byrne sat in the dock with his eyes fixed on his counsel, Mr Evans, as Mr Jardine spoke. The prosecutor alleged that the murder took place between 6:15 p.m. and 7:15 p.m. According to the medical evidence and the statement of Margaret Caterba, who had heard a scream at around 6:30, they believe Stephanie had been attacked around this time. Mr. Jardine told the court that Byrne had made a statement that contained considerable detail and he had also drawn an accurate representation of the room where Stephanie was killed. A full statement, which Jardine called the final and most telling piece of evidence against the accused, was not read at the hearing, but the prosecutor told the court that Byrne had described attacking a woman who was wearing a red pullover. An item of clothing matching this description was found in the room pulled inside out. Mr. Jardine went on to say that Byrne's statement was consistent with the evidence that would be presented by the pathologist Dr. Griffiths. Jardine told the court, There are other details such as the knife he used, which was an ordinary table knife he found in the room, and he described how it broke. One of the most significant things found in the room was a broken table knife. A handwriting sample Byrne had provided during his interview had been analysed by Dr. Harrison from the Forensic Science Laboratory in Cardiff. Dr. Harrison compared the sample with the note found in Stephanie's room and concluded that Byrne had written the words, This was the thing I thought would never happen. The first witness to be called was Margaret Brown who spoke about being attacked in the ironing room of the YWCA hostel. As she described what had happened to her, Byrne looked down at his feet and cried silently. He again appeared emotional when his cousin Joseph Ryan testified the following day about the clothing and shoes Byrne had left behind. After a seven-hour hearing, Patrick Byrne was committed for trial. He pleaded not guilty to murder and reserved his defence. The court granted Byrne a certificate for two council members to represent him. He was remanded back into custody at Winson Green Prison, where he spent his 28th birthday on March 17th. Three days after the committal hearing on March 5, 1960, Margaret Brown married her fiancé Stuart Campbell at Hope Chapel in Kings Heath. She had made a full physical recovery.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
2: What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families in EcoVadis certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The trial began at Birmingham Assizes on March 23, 1960. After the all male jury was sworn in, Patrick Joseph Byrne, who appeared more composed than he had at earlier hearings, pleaded not guilty in a firm voice. Before the case opened, his co-counsel, Mr. Brown, conceded the facts would not be challenged, but the defence would claim that Byrne's mental state diminished his criminal responsibility. The Crown's case was opened by Mr. Hobson. The prosecutor told the jury, The story you will hear is one of horror and bestiality, such as one would hope never to dream about in one's worst nightmare." Jurors were told that 29-year-old Stephanie Baird had been occupying room 4 in the Queen's Wing of the YWCA Hostel on Wheelies Road for several months, and she spent most of her time in her room. At around 6.30pm on December 23rd, a woman named Margaret Catterbaugh, who had a room in the annex near the Queen's Wing, heard a singular scream as she got ready to leave the hostel. She later said, I didn't give it much thought. I thought that as it was Christmas, some of the girls were joking. Less than an hour later at 7.25pm, Margaret Brown went into the ironing room in the main building. After hearing the doors click open three times, Margaret glanced up to see the lights go out. She was struck with a large rock when she opened the ironing room door. Her screams had sent her assailant running silently into the night and the police were called to investigate the attack at 7.45pm. Mr Hobson said, they arrived little suspecting a far more horrible scene was to be uncovered. They later found Stephanie Baird's body in room four. Five minutes after the police arrived at the hostel, Patrick Byrne had returned to his lodgings. He had told his cousin that he planned on leaving and arranged to meet him later that night for a going-away drink. Byrne then changed his clothes and made his way to the pub. Mr. Hobson said, he told the police later he was too afraid to sleep alone in his own bedroom, so spent the night in his cousin's. He departed for his mother's home at about 7.30 the next morning. Byrne wasn't interviewed until seven weeks later when Detective Sergeant Wellborn spoke to him in Warrington. It was then that Byrne admitted that he had something to do with the murder. The prosecutor described the subsequent interviews and read Byrne's 3,000-word statement to the court. After showing the jury the plan of Stephanie's room that Byrne had drawn, Mr. Hobson said, You will have little doubt that no one could possibly have drawn that plan unless they had been in the room. When you have heard the evidence, you can and will have no doubt whatsoever that it was the hand of the accused that strangled her in that cubicle. The only issue is one which will be raised by the defence as to the mental state of the accused at the time he did the actual strangulation. Patrick Burns' barrister, Mr Brown, told the jury that there had been a change in the law since the 1957 Homicide Act. In a case where someone was charged with murder, a new defence was available. The new statute said that if the accused could prove that they were suffering from an abnormality of the mind that would substantially impair their criminal responsibility, then it was not murder that they should be convicted of, but manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Mr. Brown told the jury that after hearing all of the evidence, they did not have to decide if Byrne had killed Stephanie Bett but they would have to determine whether the Crown had proven it was murder and not manslaughter. Home Office pathologist Dr. Frederick Griffiths testified that the cause of death was asphyxia due to manual strangulation. He also described the other injuries found on Stephanie Baird's body, including a skull fracture and extensive mutilation. Dr. Griffiths was asked about the decapitation by presiding judge Mr. Justice Staple. The pathologist replied, I think he must have been extraordinarily lucky without any knowledge of the matter. I would expect it to take an ordinary man between 15 minutes and half an hour with luck. The seven most graphic photographs of Stephanie's remains were not presented in open court. Instead, the judge told the jury, you will have to look at the photographs because of the state of the man's mind is one of the matters you have to consider. You had better have a close look at them in your own private room. During his testimony, Byrne's cousin Joseph Ryan was asked about Byrne coming to his room still wearing his work clothes shortly before 8pm. Joseph told the court that Byrne seemed normal. And Mr. Brown asked, thinking of the terrible things he had done, it is utterly amazing to you that he should be able to walk into your room like that. Joseph agreed. More evidence relating to Burns' interviews and the drawings he had done in custody was provided by the investigators, including Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton. DCS Horton told the judge that nothing was published in the papers about the note that would explain the accuracy of Burns' recall. Margaret Brown, who was married earlier that month, told the court about the attack in the ironing room and her recovery. She testified that while she could describe the man who had attacked her, She would not be able to recognise him as she had not seen him for very long. Three doctors were called to give evidence on Patrick Byrne's mental state. Dr Percy Murray Coates, senior medical officer at Winston Green Prison, testified for the defence. He had met with Byrne on a number of occasions since the defendant's arrest and said from his conversations with Byrne it was apparent the defendant had a sexual abnormality. Dr. Coates concluded that Byrne was a sexual psychopath, someone who derived sexual satisfaction through perverted and depraved activities. The doctor said that he did not find any history of mental illness in Byrne's family, but he believed Byrne had a below-average intelligence. Dr. Coates testified that while Byrne knew what he was doing at the time of the murder, and that his actions were legally wrong, Byrne's sexual impulses took complete control. Dr. Coates believed Byrne's condition was brought on by sexual immaturity. I consider him to be a subject suffering from an abnormality of the mind, and as a result, he has impaired mental responsibility. I think this impairment was substantial. The next expert to testify was Dr. James Joseph O'Reilly, the medical superintendent of All Saints Hospital and a psychology lecturer at Birmingham University. Dr. O'Reilly stated that Byrne had a long history of sexual abnormality. He recalled how Byrne had revealed he had been having fantasies about committing sexual violence on women since his late teens. Byrne said that these vivid dreams both frightened and excited him. He had spoken about one fantasy where he imagined putting a woman onto a circular saw and severing her body. He admitted being aroused by the thought. Dr. O'Reilly concluded that Byrne was suffering from an abnormality of the mind to a considerable degree. The final medical witness was Dr. Clifford Tetlow, a consultant psychologist at the Central Hospital in Warwick. Dr. Tetlow told the court that he believed Byrne's affliction dated back to his childhood. The expert told the court that Byrne had imagined the police and members of the public were in the hostel room with him at the time of the murder. Dr. Tetlow concluded that Byrne did not have a disease of the mind, but he did have an abnormality. Dr. Tetlow told the judge that it was his opinion that Byrne was partly insane. He said, he was abnormally excited sexually. Mr Justice Stable brought up the McNaughton Rules, a statute based on a case from 1843 when a man named Daniel McNaughton had attempted to kill the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel. McNaughton had shot and killed the Prime Minister's private secretary, Edward Drummond, instead, and at his trial his counsel argued McNaughton was insane. The jury returned a not guilty verdict at the Old Bailey later that year, and this evolved into the verdict of guilty but insane. Five rules under this law were developed, that every man is presumed sane until proven otherwise, that the burden of proof is on the defence, that it must be proven that they acted under a defect of the mind, and that the accused must not have known what they were doing or that their actions were wrong. Referring to Patrick Byrne's hallucinations that the police were in the room with him when he committed the murder, Judge Stable asked, If it be true the man was in such a state that he went on doing these dreadful things thinking there were crowds of policemen there, does that not mean he has brought himself within the McNaughton rules? Dr. Tetlow responded, I do not think so. I think this fantasy was part of his sexual excitement but it goes further back, really. He had this feeling that women did not want him, and he wanted to get his revenge in these fantasies. After five hours, the legal proceedings were adjourned until the following day. The court resumed late at Birmingham Assizes on March 24th so the judge and legal counsels could study the medical testimony from the previous day. When the session resumed, Mr. Brown acting for the defence began his closing arguments. Mr. Brown told the jury that he had already explained to them what the defence would be. He said, ''In my submission there has been called before you medical evidence, most compelling medical evidence.'' which you cannot possibly shrink from excepting to indicate that this is a case of a man who comes clearly within the terms of that particular section of the Homicide Act. Brown argued that the findings of all three medical experts were the same. There is complete agreement among all three doctors on this point, and if you accept those opinions, it is perfectly clear this man was suffering from such an abnormality of mind. That means in terms of your verdict that he would be not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. Mr. Brown reminded the jury that the defense were not using the McNaughton rules, but the newer statute of diminished responsibility. He said, I'm not asking you to say that this man in the old sense of the law under the McNaughton rules was wholly insane. I ask you to accept the evidence of the medical witnesses that in the broad sense of the word, he was partially insane. In this case, when you first heard about it, perhaps on television, many of you may have seen one of the principal witnesses appear on television. Your reaction, no doubt, was whoever did it must have been mad. Now that you have heard some of these horrifying, shocking details that mercifully could not have been made public, Now that you have seen some of the things that occurred, is your reaction not no reasonable person could have behaved like this? At the end of his 15-minute statement, Mr. Brown argued that all evidence warranted a manslaughter verdict. Mr. Hobson then began presenting the closing statement for the Crown. He argued the prosecution had proven beyond doubt that Byrne had killed Stephanie Baird. Hobson said that Byrne's mental condition was a matter for the defence, and they had to prove that there was a defect of the mind to entitle the jury to return a verdict of manslaughter by diminished responsibility. The prosecution alleged that all three doctors concluded that Byrne knew what he was doing and that it was wrong. Hobson told the jury that they should not consider the matter further, and that they should only consider whether he was insane when he killed Stephanie. Mr. Hobson concluded by saying, It is not part of the prosecution's duty to depart from the views of the prison medical officer, but I am bound to remind you that you are not bound to accept the scientific evidence. After all, they only give their opinions. The ultimate decision is yours. Mr. Justice Stable then began summing up the case. After removing his wig, the judge said, whether or not this man was suffering from disease of the mind, he knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong. Judge Stable explained the jury were the sole judges of whether the Crown had proven Byrne guilty of the crime of murder and reminded them they had to consider his mind. The judge said, That small part of the anatomy which throughout the ages has made civilised man the master of the arts of literature, music, science and medicine, who has conquered the seas, the land and the air, and which is now winging its way into space. After explaining the McNaughton rules, the judge said that juries used to be told to ask themselves if the accused would have committed the crime if a policeman had been watching. Judge Stable referred to Burns' claims that he had imagined the police in the room with him and said, When I read those words, it occurred to me that this might be a case which would come under the McNaughton rules. All three doctors were questioned about that and they all came to the conclusion that the McNaughton rules didn't apply. A judge spoke about the amount of alcohol Byrne had drunk on the day of the murder, and told the jury that if they thought the alcohol had undermined his ability to resist his urges, then he was guilty of murder as alcohol consumption was not covered by the Homicide Act as a defence. The judge said that Section 2 of the 1957 Homicide Act states that when a person who kills someone is suffering from an abnormality of the mind, whether through disease, inherited means or injury, they cannot be convicted of murder. Judge Staple listed four points for the jury to consider. Whether the evidence led them to conclude that Byrne had perverted and violent desires from a young age that he indulged in. If the impulses of these desires were so strong that he could not resist them, whether the murder was committed under those impulses, and whether setting aside those impulses, Byrne was a normal man. Mr Justice Stable told the jury that he would be giving them a direction of law that could be corrected by the Court of Appeal if he was wrong. Describing Section 2 of the Homicide Act, he said... It is a mercy section intended for the procession, for the alleviation of a man who has done a criminal act, whose condition does not bring him within the McNaughton Rules, but who mentally is not quite as other men are. If the legislature had intended that a man who strangles a woman under the influence of overwhelming and perverted lust should be immune from the ordinary consequences of that act... It would be so simple to pass an act in Parliament in those terms. They have not done so. Vicious depraved tendencies, thoughts, desires, lusts and conduct do not bring a case within the section, and it does not constitute abnormality of mind. In other words, the mentally afflicted is one thing. The section is there to protect them. The section is not there to protect where there is nothing else but viciousness and depravity. The jury left the court to deliberate at 12.24pm and returned around 45 minutes later. The verdict was unanimous. Patrick Joseph Byrne shut his eyes and tightly gripped the rails of the dock to steady himself as the foreman announced that they had found Byrne guilty of murder. When asked if he had any reply to the verdict, Byrne quietly said no. Mr Justice Stable imposed the mandatory sentence of life in prison and Byrne was led out of the courtroom. After passing the sentence, Judge Stable spoke of the credit due to the officers of Birmingham City's police force. It was not a case in which plums dropped into their mouths. It was only as a result of the most exhaustive routine that this man was interviewed. No doubt his guilty mind was a reaction which resulted in the discovery of the offender. It is quite obvious an immense amount of hard and concentrated work was put in by the police force. The discretion of when Byrne would be released was down to the Home Secretary, but in 1960 the average time served by someone who had been sentenced to life in prison was 10 years. So where are we now? The publication of the grim details of the case had caused outrage. Dame Irene Ward, an MP for Tying Mouth submitted a motion to the House of Commons, suggesting that the press council should be asked to consider whether it was in the national interest to publish the details of such horrific crimes. Patrick Byrne's mother and sisters had managed to avoid the press despite reporters chanting outside their home in Warrington. In an interview with the Warrington Guardian in 2007, Graham Wellborn, the son of Detective Sergeant Wellborn, whom Byrne had first confessed to, revealed that his father had helped Byrne's mother relocate back to Ireland with her family after her son's conviction. Within two days of Patrick Byrne's sentencing, his co-counsel, Mr Evans, announced that he was considering an appeal. The pair spoke at Winson Green Prison, where Byrne was being held. Mr Evans said that the appeal would argue the jury were misdirected. As the motion was pending... MPs from Birmingham contacted the Home Office due to the amount of correspondence they had received from their constituents. They were concerned about what they saw as the lenient average term served by those sentenced to life in prison. In early June 1960, Byrne was granted leave to appeal and his case was heard in the Court of Criminal Appeal the following month. Burns co-counsel, Mr Brown, told the appellate judges that the case was as horrible and revolting as any in the history of the English Criminal Court. Addressing the presiding justices, Lord Parker, Henry and Diplock, Brown said that the facts of the case resulted in a nauseated and emotional response from jurors. Quote, The jury might well tend to be ruled by emotion, And therefore, in my submission, it is particularly important for the trial judge to harness their emotions and create a strictly legal atmosphere. Mr. Brown alleged that the trial judge had failed to apply the correct legal principles in certain circumstances, and because the defence was based on Section 2 of the 1957 Homicide Act. It was argued the judge should have looked at the statute instead of attempting to redefine it or limit its extent. The barrister highlighted that all three medical experts had concluded that Patrick Byrne had an abnormality of the mind and could not control his actions. It was argued this should have been left to the jury to decide if this was a fact. Brown said that the judge could have told the jury that in the circumstances Byrne was in, he could not control himself and distinguish that he was doing something wrong. The defence asked that a verdict of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility be substituted for the murder conviction. On behalf of the Crown. Mr. Hobson claimed that Byrne's statement showed that he was acting like a man who had wanted to rape a woman, but ended up strangling her in the process. Mr. Hobson postulated that Byrne could well have been responsible for Stephanie Baird's death and then suffered from a defect of mind afterwards. The ruling was reserved until July 4th, 1960. Lord Parker announced in the judgment, The evidence of the revolting circumstances of the killing and the subsequent mutilations as the previous sexual history of the appellant pointed, we think plainly, to the conclusion that the accused was what would be described in ordinary language as on the borderline of insanity or partially insane. Properly directed, we do not think that the jury could have come to any other conclusion than that the defence under Section 2 of the Homicide Act was made out. The appeal will be allowed and a verdict of manslaughter substituted for the verdict of murder. The only possible sentence having regard to the tendencies of the accused is imprisonment for life. The sentence will, accordingly, not be disturbed. Patrick Byrne's sentence of life in prison was upheld even though his conviction was altered to manslaughter. The following year, DCS James Horton and Dr. Frederick Griffiths delivered a presentation on the case at the International Academy of Legal and Social Medicine in Vienna in May 1961. The case was considered an example of success through relentless and thorough police investigation. In a tragic turn of events, one of Stephanie Baird's close friends, Margaret Cullingford, whom she had met in the nerve hospital where Stephanie was being treated, took her own life. Margaret's mental state had worsened after Stephanie's murder, and she was worried about receiving electric shock therapy as treatment. She doused herself in petrol and set herself alight in a field in Norfolk. Furthermore, the blooded passenger who boarded the number eight bus outside of the YWCA hostel on the night of the murder was never identified, but denied ever boarding the bus. The hostel was closed in 1967, and the contents were sold as a lot before the building was demolished to make way for apartments built in 1968. They are still called Edencroft, just like the main building where Margaret Brown survived an attack by Patrick Byrne. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning
0: for your next trip?